News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. A couple of hundred people protested in Nova Scotia yesterday, unhappy about the decision to not have a public inquiry into the mass killing of 22 people in Portapique, Nova Scotia, earlier this year. Of course, the federal government last week announced a, a review instead that the three-person panel will do, but it's very limited, and we talked about that here on the show. We are actually learning more about this case now. There are some new court documents that uh, contain allegations that the shooter in this case actually smuggled guns and drugs from the United States. So where did this latest information come from in those documents? Well, to talk more about that, we're joined now by Global News journalist Andrew Russell. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Where did this information come from? Um, so after the, uh, the, the mass shooting uh, in Nova Scotia in April, a group of media organizations, including Global News, have been fighting to have the uh, what are called the Information to Obtain a Search Warrant, or ITOs. We've been fighting to have these publicly released now, um, as your listeners might know, we have had some success in getting access to those documents. Uh, back in May, we published some details um, from witnesses who spoke to police immediately after the shooting, um, who described him as a psychopath. Uh, there were some other uh, details about his um, who he was as a person. And but when we got these documents, there was huge sections that were blacked out or re- just like completely redacted. And so we've been fighting um, in the Nova Scotia court. Um, since uh, back in April, to have these sections lifted. And then yesterday, a judge um, last night agreed um, that it was time, and we got some of those redactions lifted and included some pretty um, explosive uh, statements from witnesses to police. Yeah, let's hear about some of those then. What did we learn? So one witness who spoke to um, police said that he, uh, this person was aware that for years uh, the gunman Gabriel Wortman had been uh, smuggling firearms from Maine across the Maine border uh, into Canada and had also been smuggling um, or had been trafficking in large quantities of guns, thousands of uh, pills of Oxycontin and uh, Dilaudid, which is another powerful painkiller. Okay. Was this, uh, was this information that police were aware of before the shooting and the fires happened? So they, it wasn't they wasn't aware before. So these were all statements that were made to police um, in the sort of the hours uh, and days after the shooting. So after after April nineteenth, um, as police uh, went to a judge to try to get uh, to search his properties in Halifax and Dartmouth, uh, they have to make a search warrant application. And this is when there you know there are dozens of interviews with people in the community, people who knew. Um, the gunman. It seems so unreal to hear all that, though, Andrew, doesn't it? Because you think this was a small community. Yeah, and it, it does raise a lot of questions, as, as you mentioned off the top there, about uh, the need for a public inquiry. Um, we haven't heard yet from the RCMP. Um, it's important to uh, to note that they, these allegations have not been tested in court, so they have not been thoroughly um, vetted by police or have it been tested in court in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's going to be a lot of questions today from the RCMP about, you know, if there is, you know, other aspects here of, you know, allegations of uh, firearms trafficking and drug trafficking, uh, that is, that is really significant. And um, we haven't heard from the RCMP yet. Yeah. Has there been a lot in the beginning, they seemed quite open. They held a couple press conferences in the first few weeks there. Uh, Very little since then. Have they kind of stopped giving out a lot of updates and information on this? Well, it's, it's been a number of, it's been a number of uh, weeks since we've had, had a, a press conference from the RCMP. They did have regular press conferences, but they were very, very, um, uh, KG, I guess, with certain aspects of because there was an ongoing investigation into how he was able to obtain um, the uniform that he used at the car that he used in the in the shooting, and then of course how he had that access to the guns. And that's one question um, we've been really digging into is, is how he was able to get those firearms. And I think this is you know raise, again raises a lot of questions for them. It does, and given the fact that there won't be any kind of a trial or anything like that, um, wh- how are we supposed to find out more information? Um, that that is a great question. Um, you saw yesterday uh, we uh, Global News reported on it extensively on the ground. Um, just the 
the pain and the anger of, mm-hmm. of people who who lost family members, who lost mothers, who lost daughters, and it's uh, it just it's heartbreaking for the family that they're not going to get that public inquiry that that was promised to them. Yeah, Andrew, does it feel like there's still a lot of healing that needs to be done in the community? It does. It does. And as um, a couple of people pointed out on social media last night, um, it's going to be, I guess, the media who's going to be doing the, the public inquiry here. So it's uh, it was just looking at the you know the pain and the anger from yeah. um, from some of the victims. It was just it's hard to it's hard to see that they're not going to get that public inquiry. It or, is. Or I mean, you know, things could change, but it's um, yeah. Well, we'll see what the panel review comes up with. Andrew, thank you for your time on this this morning. Absolutely. Thank you. That is Andrew Russell, a global news journalist, talking about information that has been obtained through new court documents that Global News, along with other media organizations, went to court to unseal this, and the court agreed. And some of those documents contain allegations, and this is information that the police collected after the shooting happened, after 22 people were killed. It's information that they collected that shows that there are allegations in there that the shooter in the case here uh, smuggled guns and drugs from the United States for years. Of course, again, not proven in court or anything like that. This is just information that the police had gathered. Uh, But witnesses, unidentified witnesses, told police that they were aware that the uh, person in this case had smuggled guns and drugs from Maine for years and had a stockpile of guns. And this person apparently had known the gunman for something like 10 years. Still doesn't help the community to try to find out what happened in the way that this unfolded. And we've been talking a lot about that story recently as well. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Voting is is going to rig the election. I really do. Uh, Are you suggesting that you might not accept the results of the election? I, I have to see. Look, Hillary Clinton asked me the same thing. Can you give a direct answer? You will accept the election. I have to see. Look, you. I have to see. No, oh, I'm not going to just say yes. I'm not going to say no. And I didn't last time either. Okay, so that's U.S. President Donald Trump being interviewed by Chris Wallace on Fox News last week. There are now fewer than 100 days until the U.S. election. That will see Donald Trump score off against Joe Biden in November. To talk more about how this unusual, right, election season is shaping up, Matthew Lebo joins us now, the Department Chair of of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario. Matthew, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Unusual doesn't really seem to cover it, does it? We've never seen a campaign quite like this one. No, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing like this at all. What would normally be happening at this point in a presidential election year? Uh, there, you would start to see lots of big rallies, um, getting ready for the conventions, um, sort of good planning out of uh, the next few months and, and uh um, get out the vote campaigns and lots of door to door knocking and um, sort of net- in person networking to turn out the vote for the, the two parties. Um, you know, and, and now most things will be virtual. Right. Now, because the conventions have always been the kind of the the re, the catalyst that they use to really launch their campaigns and get attention and put their people out there. How how are they going to do that if, if those conventions aren't going to exist in that fashion? It's going to be a lot of virtual stuff. There'll be um, perhaps a, a small a small uh, campaign event where there's a nomination speech and there's an acceptance speech. But, uh, you know, the key things that happen at conventions are, are the voting of the delegates to, to officially nominate the candidates um, and, and a lot of free TV yeah. uh, advertisements. Um, in the end, though, can't, uh, those conventions usually just cancel each other out. And so, so to not have both of them uh, maybe is, you know, it's odd. Right but it's probably harmless to where the campaign would have gone uh, in a different scenario. It doesn't allow a reset either, right? If any of the candidates have been having trouble, the conventions were always good to do that. Where we are right now, I think the president would definitely like a reset. A lot of criticism for Joe Biden for not coming out of the basement, essentially. Yeah, I I think, um, yeah, Joe Biden's staying quiet is not hurting him in the polls. Um, He he is giving some speeches and he's... uh, uh, putting out a lot of ads as well, 
But, uh, you know, Donald Trump being front and center every day is, um, is not hurting Joe Biden. Right. So do you think that's part of their campaign is to just lay low? Well, I think part of their campaign should be to stay healthy. Um, you know, the, he, Joe Biden has a sizable lead. Um, it's a much less volatile race than the 2016 uh, race. He's got a bigger lead than Hillary Clinton had. And uh, it's hard to see what could really rock the campaign to, to narrow that gap. Uh, certainly a health crisis, um, if, if Biden were to get COVID-19, could drastically change the race. There's not a lot of things that I can see drastically changing the race. So taking all the precautions that he can, letting Donald Trump just just be Donald Trump and uh, watching the economy not recover and watching um, you know a bungled COVID-19 response. All these things are you know, day by day. Um, the election's getting closer and Trump is not doing anything that would make you think he's capable of closing that gap. Right. And now, as we heard there in that clip with Chris Wallace, there are concerns about, you know, mail-in voting and absentee ballots and all of that. Is that shaping up to be a big concern? Um, It is a big concern that Donald Trump thinks it's um, a big concern and that that's a basis for fraud. There's been absentee balloting for many, many years, and Donald Trump casts his ballots um, absentee. And there's entire states that use absentee uh, ballots or mail ballots for, for their elections. Uh, there's there's possibility of fraud and everything, but there's very, very little evidence of fraud. So what the real concern is, is on election night when the TV says, you know, we've counted the ballots, or really it'll take a few days to count all the mail-in ballots. When, when the networks say that, you know, Joe Biden got more votes in Pennsylvania than Donald Trump did, and so he gets the 20 electoral votes. Will Donald Trump then say, nah, they cheated, and I'm not accepting that result? That's, that's the real worry. Right. And now we're heading down into that final kind of three months. Is it, This is the most critical time, isn't it, Matthew? Like, this is when things get more intense. Absolutely. Um, you know, the polls, as you get closer and closer, the polls uh, get more and more accurate. It's really, you know, at the middle of the summer where we are now, things start to pick up, getting getting ready for the official nominations, getting ready for the conventions, getting ready for um, uh, the, the choice of the vice president on the Democratic side. And then once Labor Day starts, you know, it's, it's just serious every day. Do you, do you think people pay attention to the polls, right? Because we know that we've had some issues with that in the past, even the 2016 election, you know, both sides had different polling. Uh, do you think people pay attention to that? Um, I think the candidates do pay attention. They're, you know, the polls, uh, the polls in 2016 were, were not helpful at the state level. They, they missed key states or they, the only polls that existed in three key states were really old um, and they, they were six weeks out of date, by the, um, and they were counted on by the Democrats. But at the national level, they were still pretty accurate. At the national level, they said Hillary Clinton would win by 4%. She won by about 3%. And so right now, poll after poll showing Biden with a sizable lead, 8 9 10% uh, nationally, and showing him with a lead in the key states. Right. Uh, you know, those tell you that, that Donald Trump is, uh, is behind. Right. I guess the the thing that always got me, though, Matthew, is that do we do we pay attention to national polls? Because it's not like they vote nationally. They vote state by state with the Electoral College. Well, we pay a little attention, you know, to to um, to have a lead of eight to ten points is a lot. And that will be reflected in the key states as well. Um, Of course, you're you're right that it's the key states that matter the most. So Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and the polling averages show Biden to be ahead by at least seven points in those three. Uh, States like Florida and Arizona are good backup plans if he should fail to win one of those three key Midwestern states. You you know, that's that's what really matters. But it's really hard to imagine that anybody could lose the Electoral College when winning the popular vote by 8%. Well, we will see what happens. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Matthew Lebo, Department Chair of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to chat with Nikki Reitmeyer. You know, Nikki, I'm just listening to that Twisted Sister song, right? Like, we're not going to take it. Yeah. And I remember I loved that song when it came out when I was in grade nine. And I used to sing it and I'd watch the video and my mother was horrified. (laughs) 
one, she couldn't understand that D, with D. Snyder, like what the the whole face, the outfit, the, and so she the was, that was one of those. Yeah, exactly. There, one of those songs that you know your parents just are like, I can't believe you listened to that. Did you have a song like that where your parents are like, What are you listening to? Oh, so my generation would have been like the Eminem generation. Oh, of course, yes. So. Imagine the torment that I put my poor parents through as some rebellious 13-year-old locked in my bedroom. I'm not going to take it anymore, mom and dad. And then put on my Eminem CD. So I think that your parents, all things considered, had it easy. <laughs> I don't know. She, I just always remember her face the first time she saw that video where she was like, what are you watching? Uh, so yes, just had to do that when I heard that song right there. Every generation has that though, don't they? This is what I'm thinking. Every person, every person, if they think back to when they were a teenager, their mother have been a song or something that their parents were just hated that they didn't understand why their children would listen to it that's actually a fun question to ask on the buzz line this morning 604-331-BUZZ 604-331-2899 when you think back on your childhood was there a musician in particular or a song in particular there must be your that just drove your parents crazy. Yeah. They thought that you were just just uh, gone completely wild for listening to this song. My mother seriously worried about me. She started to talk about how she was worried about me because I love Twisted <laughs> Sister. Uh, we're not going to take it. And I loved it. And she was just, I think the more she was upset about it, the more I listened to it, right? So of it was like course. a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, so yes, yours would be any Eminem song, I guess. Whatever the big Eminem song was at that time, she's like, I, I can't even remember now. But That's Eminem funny. for sure. I, I loved Eminem for at least a year and a half of my life. That's and funny. then. And then I got old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see what people say. They can let us know. They can also email me, simi at cknw.com. We're talking to Richard Zussman in a few minutes. I have a feeling he'll have one for us too. Uh, But speaking of Richard, he was talking to the premier yesterday, as many people were. This license plate issue is a really interesting one. Yeah, we were talking about this on, on the show yesterday, and then Richard Zussman ended up asking the premier about it. You know, what about these people with out-of-town license plates? I think that we've all seen them driving on the road. Before the pandemic, you maybe just thought it was a novelty, but during the pandemic, I think it's raised a lot of people's attention to go, whoa, hold on a second, you know, are you supposed to be here? So Richard Zussman asked the premier about this. This is what the premier said. If you believe that uh, that someone is a threat to you, you should keep your distance. Uh, if you can't, uh, wear a mask and, and uh, be civil and respectful. Be calm, be kind, and we'll be safe. Uh, with respect to those who uh, have uh, offshore plates and are feeling uh, harassed, I, I would suggest perhaps public transit. Uh, I would suggest that they get their plates changed. I would suggest they ride a bike. Hmm. I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but he doesn't sound like he has a lot of sympathy for people who have out-of-town license plates. I mean, I love John Horgan's kind of tough talk that he does. But with that said, it was a really interesting response to say, you know, the the blame's on you for for having the plates, even if, you know, you are a Canadian who's been living here for, you know, however long, and that you should just be taking transit instead. It was kind of a strange response, but, you know, I don't don't mind that he sort of... uh, that he, that he talks a little tough sometimes. I don't know if that's necessarily a practical solution for everyone to just jump right. on the bus instead of using their vehicle, especially for a lot of people who have been here for, I mean, it could, they could have a vehicle that was here for years that just happens to have plates somewhere else. So uh, an interesting response. Yes. Now you saw, you've seen some interesting things online too, in terms of people taking pictures of these out-of-town license plates. Yeah, so I saw one vehicle and it had an Arizona license plate, but beside it was a bumper sticker and the bumper sticker had a Canadian flag and it said Canadian citizen quarantine completed July 23rd, 2020. I thought that was really clever. Nicely done, though, but it's honest too, right? So you can go, oh, okay, makes sense. Perfect. Thank you very much. It just eliminates that curiosity that people have. Exactly. And I think as soon as you see that, you go, okay, these people, uh, you know, not only do they've they, done their were part. they conscious enough to get to the, exactly, they've done their part and they're aware that other people will be concerned. So right. they're being a bit proactive in that sense. There was uh, another picture I saw yesterday of uh, a camper van going over the Lionsgate Bridge and, you know, someone snapped a picture of it and the the van had, or the camper van had out of town license plates from a different province. But they had a sign posted on the back of the camper van that said, just borrowed the van. We're from BC. Oh, nice. Okay. See, people are putting the signs up. Ends the question.
Yeah, exactly. I mean, another strategy is what they're doing in the Yukon. They started this new program where they hand out green decals to people with out-of-province plates who are authorized to, to travel within the province because the Yukon still has limited who's actually allowed to come into the province. Right. And I think that this is also an interesting strategy. It's funny because we talked about the sticker thing yesterday a little bit on the show as well in regards to BC ferries. Yeah. But, you know, this might also be a strategy for identifying people from out-of-province who have done a quarantine or you know perhaps the vehicle's already been here they've been here for a long period of time you get this decal you put it on in your car and it. then it helps sort of prevent some of the harassment or vandalism that people might be experiencing yeah let's hear what yukon premier sandy silver had to say there's many valid reasons why folks are uh in uh in yukon and not on transportation routes towards alaska this definitely will help out you know seeing the the decal on on vehicles and if you're concerned about it if it was at a box store or downtown or at a grocery store uh with this decal that there'd be less calls into the enforcement you know that is genius i wish they could do this at the border like if you tell the border guard we're going to alaska give them a sticker and say this must be displayed on your vehicle and it must be through a direct way to Alaska. And that way, if you do see them in BAMP for something, you can say, hey, you've got this decal. You're not supposed to be here. Hey, now that's an interesting idea. Don't just do it for the people who are authorized to be yeah. within the province on a regular basis, but do it for the people who are supposed to be on their way that's, to Alaska. That to me would solve the problem. But anyway, Nikki, great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. House of Commons Finance Committee is certainly getting a lot of attention this week. We know that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his Chief of Staff Katie Telford will be testifying in front of that committee. That happens on Thursday afternoon and all of this, of course, having to do with that now cancelled contract between the federal government and the WE Charity. Now, for more on this, we're joined now by Marika Walsh, who's been writing about this for the Global Mail newspaper. Good morning, Marika. Good morning. I understand even the Kielbergers are going to be appearing. That's right. They're going to be appearing this afternoon. And we're really expecting a very interesting um, testimony and hearing from them because we've seen in the last few weeks that the stories from, or not the stories, but the narrative or the explanation from the government and the We Charity about how this happened, what led up to it, has been kind of changing and they started to become a bit more in conflict with each other. And so what more the Kilbergers say today, what impact that has on the liberal government is what I'll be looking for. Okay. And so how long are they going to be testifying for? Well, that's a bit up in the air right now. They're scheduled for an hour and a half, but yesterday the conservatives put forward a motion for them to testify for four hours. So whether that happens all of today at the end of the day or whether it's broken up over a few days is still not fully clear, but it appears that it will today only be an hour and a half from them. Also important to note that their former board chair, Michelle Douglas, is going to be testifying before the Kielbergers. And that's important because there was a big change in the board in earlier this year when layoffs were happening at the organization due to the pandemic. And she has told us in our reporting that her resignation was not, you know, in the, quote, ordinary course of matters, and then it was due to concerns that she had at the organization. And so what she says at committee when she is protected from, um, you know, being sued will be very interesting as well. Okay, so that's also happening. Uh, what What is the latest in terms of, of the other companies that were potentially asked to or considered to uh, have this contract as well. I understand there's a bit of discrepancy about whether or not companies even knew they were on this list. Yes, there has been reporting from other news outlets that some of the companies that or organizations that the government has listed as people or groups that were considered weren't contacted by the government. So it's hard to see how how in-depth they were considered if, if there was no actual discussion with them. I think that's something that's a question for the government to respond to. And maybe we'll see that from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his chief of staff on Thursday. But I think what's going to be very interesting to hear today is whether anybody in the prime minister's office was engaging with We Charity. That's something that the prime minister's office has not clarified yet. And also, who actually chose We Charity? Who was the one in government championing We Charity? And the reason why that's important is because the... Opposition has said that it looks like We Charity got an inside track, that they had essentially the deck was stacked for them to get this contract because of their connections 
to the Liberal government, namely Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's family and Finance Minister Bill Morneau's family. And so it will be very interesting to hear from We Charity what they say about who they were dealing with and how close the people they were dealing with were to Mr. Morneau or Mr. Trudeau. Okay, and it turns out the charity had already received some money in advance of this? So what happened is that, and the former parliamentary budget officer says this is rare, but what happened is that within a week of the charity officially signing the agreement with the government, the contract allowed them to get all of the money to operate the program over the course of the following months, rather than it being rolled out as the program rolled out. And the parliamentary budget officer described that as being very front end loaded and raising questions again about why that was needed. If the charity was best placed for it, why did they need so much money up front? The charity says that it was essentially startup costs that need to be covered. But there are many questions that came out of, you know, the, the information on this front end loaded contract came out of the release of the contract yesterday. Lots of more questions are coming from that for the government about why so much money was needed up front for the charity, but also why it was budgeted for, um, you know, just over half of what was publicly stated. So the contract is for $543 million, and publicly the government has said that it was for $912 million. So that's a big difference. It also shows that We Charities contract took effect May 5th, which is more than two weeks before federal cabinet made its final decision on the program. So there's lots of questions that have come from there and from virtually every day in the news cycle in Ottawa for the last three months. And, you know, all of those, I think, will be more put to Trudeau and his chief of staff on Thursday. But it will still be interesting to hear what the Kielbergers say about those things today. All right. I'll be looking forward to reading your story. Marika, thank you. Thank you. That's Global and Mail reporter Marika Walsh covering the story of what is going on in Ottawa today. The House of Commons Finance Committee hearing from Craig and Mark Kielberger and what their story is in regards to how their charity received this huge government contract. More to come on. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news, the Vancouver Park Board finally voted last night on the issue of drinking in public parks, and it was a yes to allow drinking in 22 public parks. But don't get all excited and pack that picnic basket just yet, because the Park Board says the province still has to sign off on this, so they're thinking this might be in place for next summer. What is going on here? Let's talk more about this. John Irwin joins us now, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on soon. Why the delay? Uh, Well, I guess part of it was that in order to do it, you know, totally quickly this summer, and we still might be able to do it, we would have to give uh, some of our authority over to the the province, the Lieutenant Lieutenant Governor and Council, um, and no one on the board was was willing to do that. Uh, Part of it is that we don't have the flexibility, if we do that, to... um, you know, uh, react quickly to any any sort of pilot problems that might be happening. So say if there was one particular location that we wanted to take out of the pilot program, we wouldn't have been able to do that. But why is it that places like North Vancouver and, and Port Coquitlam can do this so quickly, but Vancouver can't? Because there seems to be something in the Act uh, as it stands that allows municipalities to do it, but we're we're in a gray zone where we're the only uh, elected park boards, you know, in the province. And, and for some reason, we don't, we don't get, have the same ability. So the act would be changed, I think, so that we would have the same ability as municipalities. Right, because the act says the, you cannot drink liquor in a public place unless that public place is licensed or designated by a municipality or regional district as a place where liquor can be consumed. Do you not fall under the municipality umbrella? Uh, we do, but I guess we're a separate ju- jurisdiction. So, so it's it's a bit of a complicated jurisdictional, um, you know, issue. So, so we were told by the province that we either had to wait to do the the changing of the act, the legislative change, or we'd have to do this um, this more uh, regulatory mode where we give some of the authority over to the province. And, now, and no one, on, no one on the board was willing to do that. So. Will the province actually do anything, though? Our understanding is when they've been asked about this, it's not really a priority for them. Yeah, it's. I guess it's hard to say. I mean, I guess what I what I said last night to someone 
uh, else uh, was that, you know, basically we are in the time of COVID still. We're in phase three, of course, but, you know, we can see what's happening south of the border. So, so we're not 100% certain what's going to happen going forward. And, uh, you know, so, so everybody has a lot to deal with, right, at the provincial level, at the federal level, the municipal level, and at our level. And so uh, it may happen, but I know they have a lot on their plate, so I could understand how it could possibly not happen. And then the other thing is we're really getting to a point where, you know, even with Lieutenant Governor and print in council kind of uh, regulatory changes, it probably would have been mid-August before the pilot gets up, and we're kind of we're drifting through the summer, right? Um, you know, instead of doing instead of doing one, you know, earlier in July. So yeah, and what? Why is that? Because I, from other commissioners that I've spoken to, this isn't something that the park board just started talking about. It's been discussed for more than a year. So how is it? That was way before COVID nineteen. So how has it taken so long? Uh, well, you know, I, I can't answer that fully. I think I think COVID nineteen itself probably interrupted you know, part of the train of this. And, and then I've been, you know, kind of the, you know, one of the voices on the board that's urging caution. Because in a way, I sort of like the existing model. Uh, you know, you just, everybody's doing it. We know everyone's doing it. I've seen people doing it myself many times. But, uh, you know, if it's quote-unquote illegal and people are getting unruly, it does give the the you know, the beach patrol or the Vancouver police department to, um, you know, of the beach, uh, of the beach patrol, uh, to ask people to pour out, um, you know, and then that might sort of slow things down. Um, you know, so, but a lot of my colleagues on the board want it changed. And so we're going forward to change it with a pilot. And, uh, and I think the pilot is good in the sense that it's temporary and we'll see what happens. We'll see how people, how people manage it. Mm-hmm. Do you understand kind of the frustrations that people feel toward the park board right now and the fact that this has just taken so long and seems to be going on forever? Yeah, I, c- I can understand that. But, you know, people also ha- have to understand that we have another group of people also contacting us saying, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't allow the, the changes to happen. Right. So it's, it's kind of one of these, um, you know, you're, you're, going to have unhappy people either way uh, situations. You know, the other concern I had is that we're now moving forward within this pilot to look at uh, selling beer, wine, and cooler, uh, you know, beverages from our concessions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those concessions will be outside of the zone. So people will go to the concession, buy a drink, go through the park to get to the zone, and then consume it. So um, that was another reason for me, you know, not being you know, not voting for, for most of it. Yeah, it just seems to me so, that what you need is a more comprehensive alcohol policy. Yeah, or, or you know, maybe we could have tried the, the original 10 sites. The other thing about the 22 sites is, um, you know, the, the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority actually wanted less than 10 when there were 10, and now there are 22. And I think they're worried about, you know, this mix of alcohol and uh, and then leading to a lack of social distancing and you know right. and a little bit more of a party atmosphere happening. But do we uh, actually think this isn't already happening in parks? Oh no, it's it's already happening. Uh, you know, we, we we saw that over the last couple of weeks at at Third Beach. Um, you know, and then the open question is: Are their concerns valid, or are they just too worried? And I guess my perspective is. You know, I, I think we've done a really good job with our um, you know, Vancouver Coastal Health and our provincial health authorities around the pandemic, and and I want to stay in a good spot, right? I don't want to I don't want to go back, uh, you know, because if we start having, say, you know, there's been a tiny uptick, but let's say it becomes a big uptick, you know, we'll probably have to start reversing direction and I don't think anybody wants that. But what okay you mentioned Third Beach there which of course yeah. was all in the news in the last week or so. And yeah. you know that's park board jurisdiction if that kind of gathering is happening in any kind of a park situation what can the park board do about it? What can you enforce? Well, I asked, you know, staff if we could, you know, 
look at it and, and go down there with our, um, you know, we had these champions during the, the height of the pandemic. Right. Whether they could go there and just ask people nicely, you know, please don't set this up. Please don't do this. Um, you know, uh, there could be other possibilities, but I need to communicate with staff around it. So you're still working on that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, you bet. Take care. So I just have a couple things to say in regards to the interview that we just had there with one of the Vancouver park board commissioners. If you were frustrated, I felt that because I was frustrated too. And all I can say is this next time people, we have municipal elections, I'm begging you to please pay attention, make sure you vote, and please learn more about the people who are on the ballot. Let's ask them some tough questions. I mean, it's all well and good when things are fine, but when you hit some rough patches, you want people who know how to push through, step up, make things happen. We are not seeing that at that level. I mean, the fact that they're still talking about drinking in public parks, Yes, they passed it last night after what seemed like a torturous process. Uh, But now they're talking about not actually having it in effect until next summer. And it's a pilot project because they think they're in a gray area with the province. Well, the province has other things on their mind right now. So I'm sure if they just went ahead and did this, they could deal with, you know, getting that settled with them later. Don't think the province minds, especially when you've got other municipalities like, you know, Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam and uh, North Vancouver already doing this. So we're going to talk more about that. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Bill 22. You may not have heard of it, but it's causing a lot of concerns about its ability to keep youth in hospital as they recover from things like a drug overdose. Now, this bill was making its way through the legislature. It has now been put on pause because of all the concerns out there. We're going to talk about why that is. Joining us is Leslie McBain, co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm. Leslie lost her son to opioid um, overdose and wants to talk more about this this morning. Leslie, thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for asking me. And I know you've been following along with Bill 22. What were your concerns about this? Well, there's, there's many. Um, one, one thing, maybe the most important or one of the most important uh, provisions <clears throat> is that uh, kids can be, well, just as it says, can be, be put into involuntary care, which youth will see as incarceration, first of all. It's, it's not going to be a, something that they're willingly going to, to be um, happy about. They'll go into involuntary care, and then while in there, there are certain provisions that, that can be used to keep them there that are quite draconian, such things that when you get into this amendment, things like the use of chemical, electronic, physical, other means to keep them there. Um, so there's just a huge issue of trust, and uh, there's no evidence, actually, that this will actually work to keep kids, uh, to help kids stay off drugs or to treat them for drug addiction. Um, there's another component of this that in BC we don't have in place any of the uh, pathways to recovery that has been that have been mentioned uh, after mm-hmm. the youth is released. So it's it's deeply deeply flawed, and uh, it should be actually turfed. It should be dropped into the round file, and they need to start over again. So, do you think that was the biggest problem? Is that it was kind of putting the cart before the horse? Is that parents and everybody wants to talk about recovery and helping these kids, and this was talking about keeping these kids kind of in hospital longer? Yes, and um, hospital it would be a kind term because I think. For one thing, a, a youth could end up in a youth psychiatric ward, and I, I can't imagine that anybody who um, has overdosed and then come wakes up in a psych ward is going to be happy about that or even going to be yeah. trusting that that's going to be a good thing for them in the long run. And the other thing is, you know, in the Lower Mainland, there there are facilities, and in, um, you know, in Victoria and so on, but when you get into the more remote communities, there's nothing in place. Uh, there aren't physicians or, or med- medical health professionals that are trained to deal with these kinds of situations, even if this, this uh, amendment went through. So the infrastructure, like I say, is just right. absent. So you must have been quite relieved to hear that they were pausing this. I... 
I am relieved that they're putting this on pause. And I don't know... I don't know what the motivation is, if it, it is entirely that uh, there was so much pushback. Um, it needs to be rewritten, and if they're going to do that before the fall, terrific. Um, if they involve, there was not enough, cons- there was no yeah. conf- consultation with families and with, with youth who use drugs. Um, they're really in anything we do, we have to consult with the stakeholders, and that just wasn't done. So let's see if, you know, given in mind that they say they're going to bring this back in the fall, what's the number one thing you would tell them to change? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's so many flaws that I, I can't even say. I, I Here's what it would look what I would really like to see. I'd like to see a youth coming, if, if a youth comes into the ER in an overdose situation, that person needs to have some rights. They need to be handled with, with gentle care. They need to be asked what they need. They need to be um, connected with their community or family uh, if, if, you know, if that's appropriate for them. We need to handle people very gently, not throw them into some kind of locked facility without their permission. And there are legal ramifications to that as well, I should say. But we need to just change the whole paradigm. We need to treat people with substance use disorder as, as a disorder and ask them and, t- and give them the best care, give them the evidence-based care, uh, give them what they need. So I think the whole thing needs to be just tamped down in mm-hmm. terms of, like I say, these draconian measures and start treating kids with, with some kind of uh, as though we love them, <laughs> which we do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Parents so, need more tools, not fewer tools. Fewer tools. That's right. And involve families. Like I say, that's the that's the best tool in the toolbox. If if the family is, you know, if the family has um, connection and and the youth is is willing to do that, because really it is all about what they need and want to become stable. All right, Leslie. Thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Oh, you're very welcome. Appreciate your time. That's Leslie McBain. She's the co-founder of Mom Stop the Harm. She lost her son to opioid addiction. She knows what she's talking about here, and she is glad to hear that the provincial government is pausing Bill 22, but she said, listen, she would prefer that they rip it up and start all over again because many people who have lost loved ones to opioid overdoses are not happy with what was in this legislation. So we'll keep an eye on that. One of the big things was not enough consultation. Will they be doing more? Uh, we will be talking more about it. This is Mornings with Simi. What is going on in Belcara? Sounds like a bit of a nightmare, actually. It has the mayor up in arms and people in the community over the chaos that they have been seeing. So let's talk more about that. What is going on? Joining us now is the mayor of Belcara, Neil Belenke. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. What's going on in your community? Uh, I, I wish I knew. It's uh, it, it's pandemonium. The, the the it's not just the volume of people, but it's the behavior of the people that concerns us. Obviously, the parks are large. They're beautiful. There's lots of room to absorb a lot of people. But oh. in one specific case, White Pine Beach and Sassamat Lake, it is it is insanity. Okay, so that you haven't seen anything like this before. Is this new behavior? Absolutely new. No question. It's the kind of thing that uh, is a precursor to the old TV show Miami Vice. <laughs> okay, what can you describe to us what's happening? Uh, gangs, drugs, fighting. Uh, if you add in a what? pandemic to the old Miami Vice shows, it's the, it's the, unfortunately the worst of the worst behavior of all different aspects of humanity in one place. So they're, like are they showing up early? Like describe to us an average weekend day. Uh, tra- monster trucks parked over top of the no parking cones on both sides of the road so cars can't get by, people can't walk. Uh, Every area of access to the lake, not just the beach, but every area of access to the lake filled with people who are, are littering. Um, unfortunately, a, a number of them are doing drugs. Obviously, there are some gangs who, have, who are bringing weapons and there's fighting and bear spray what? and assaults. And it's a, it's a beautiful place that deserves environmentally be treated properly and in a time of the pandemic to be respected with social distancing. And we see none of the above. Okay, so what is Belcara doing then about this, or what can you do? It's not in Belcara proper. It's actually in Port Moody, and it's one of the Metro Vancouver uh, organized areas. And so we support Metro Vancouver, of course, in trying to help to to manage access from Belcara. But uh, Port Moody has really got the lion's share of the challenge in trying to... to, uh, 
monitor and uh, deter all the illegal parking and access that overburdens the park and causes a lot of this risk. Okay, so then have you spoken with Port Moody? What, what are they doing from their side? I've certainly offered an awful lot of feedback. I've offered uh, what Belcara has successfully done thus far, including raising our parking ticket prices and having a much more active relationship with the tow truck companies. Mm-hmm. But I've not received a whole, lot of, uh, a whole lot in response other than they're working on it. And so uh, Metro Vancouver tells me that they've got a great relationship with Fort Moody and together they're working hard to solve this. It is, uh, it's an ongoing problem. and I, I can assure you no one's taking it lightly. It's just difficult to sit by and watch until it's solved. So in the meantime, then, Mayor Blanke, all you can do is tow vehicles. On the Belcara side, we can tow, we can ticket, and we can ensure with education that people recognize that when the parking lots are full, that truly means that there isn't more space and people should go for a plan B. That's the best that we can do. And are people getting that message? In Belcara, they are. I think the price finally outweighs the risk of being of being ticketed and towed. And as a result, if people aren't able to park illegally in Port Moody, they will, in fact, move on. Okay. So but, you're, you're asking ahead. for help, essentially. Education and help. People just need to understand that, that, that there are so many beautiful places to go. It doesn't have to be White Pine Beach and Sassamat Lake. If it's full, it's full. Otherwise, come early. Come early, enjoy, stay, and try and, pl- try and block yourself off a space that allows for you to not be shoulder to shoulder with your peers. And don't forget the lake as an E-Cola. E-Cola uh, yeah, you can't even uh, swim there, right? Lady, you're not even supposed to swim there. My wife told me she saw the actual numbers and they are disturbingly high compared to all the other waterways around. So there are better places to go, safer and certainly uh, more responsible ways to treat the environment. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, we'll have to get an update from you then in the next couple of weeks, but thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, thanks for helping spread the message. Stay well. We will do our best. That is Neil Belenke, the mayor of Belcara, frustrated, as you can tell, with what's going on out at Sassamat Lake there. He said it's just it's craziness, like something out of a reality TV show. People are just not paying attention. Have you seen some of this behavior? Uh, let us know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, who doesn't love a story with a happy ending, right? Well, we do. I know that. And that is exactly what a family in Surrey got. We're going to tell you all about it right now uh, with the help of our guest, Nathaniel Powell, uh, who wants to talk about a, well, really remarkable family heirloom. Nathaniel, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, tell me about this family heirloom. What is it? So it's a christening or a baptismal gown, and it's 113 years old. Wow. And my kids, I guess, would be the fifth generation to wear it and in in total there have been 59 people that have worn it that's amazing yeah it's 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 a it's a pretty pretty cool family heirloom i mean it's it was made for my my great granny in newfoundland back in 1907 and it's kind of traveled around the country uh you know what it's needed so your family is from newfoundland then yeah you know, it's so funny. My my husband's from Newfoundland. We also, in that side of the family, have a christening gown that is about 100 years old that has traveled down and across the country from generation to generation. Must be something wow. that they really do over there. Yeah. So tell me what happened to yours, though. So it was uh, it was shipped out from my, uh, my, my dad's cousin in Ontario through FedEx. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess she was just checking in to make sure that it, it had uh, made it out to me. And uh, I didn't have it, so I, I thought maybe it got delivered to the neighbor. So I went over and talked to my neighbor, and uh, we're actually new to the neighborhood, so it was kind of a you know neat opportunity um, to meet the neighbors. I ended up meeting everybody, but mm-hmm. <laughs> anyhow, I've, he checked his security footage, and lo and behold, uh, it was delivered, and then 20 minutes later, it was stolen. No! Okay. Yeah, so I, so what I happened? checked my own checked my own footage. Uh, luckily, I had a camera in my front window, and uh, a fellow with a, uh, a ref, ref, uh, reflective vest and a clipboard uh, pulled up and walked up to my porch and grabbed it. So he was he looked like a delivery guy. Right. Okay. So at that point, that you must have just been thinking, "Oh my gosh, how are we going to get this back?" Right? Because this happens to people, and it's horrible. Yeah, you hear about these porch thefts, and uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, it has happened to us before, but it was something from a big retailer, and you know they can send send it again, no problem. But something like this is irreplaceable. It is. So, what did you do? So, I first contacted the RCMP and filed a police report, and a constable came out and, and uh, came out to our house, and I can't say enough good things about this constable. He was just fantastic. 
and then I posted uh, pictures to Facebook. And in under 12 hours, it was shared, I think, over a thousand times. And did it work? Yeah, luckily somebody uh, recognized the van in the picture and was able to get uh, that info to police. And uh, at 10 p.m. at night, the uh, constable arrived at my door with the gown. You're kidding me. So the same constable that took your report, stuck with this case, got the gown and brought it back to you? Yeah, apparently he, he put in a long day. He, I think he was even off duty by the time he, he brought it back. He just really wanted to you know, have a happy ending for us. So I'm, I'm really happy that it worked out. Oh, Nathaniel, that's amazing. You must have thought there's no way this could happen. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a roller coaster emotionally. <laughs> when we realized it was gone, you know, I, I, I felt completely sick. And it was, uh, you yeah, know, the whole family was, was upset about it. Then when we found it, it was it was pure joy. I mean, it it really showed us the kind of the the worst and the best of people. Like I guess. I'll bet. Yeah. Did you want to give a shout out to that officer? Yeah, it, uh, Constable Vaught in uh, in Surrey, Surrey RCMP. Uh, thanks so much for for everything. Our family really appreciates it. Now I have to ask, since you have the christening gown coming to you, is there a new baby in the family? Yeah, my son James. He's two months old now, and We've kind of, uh, you know, been putting off the baptism a little bit just because of uh, of COVID, but uh, August 9th is going to be the day. Oh, well, congratulations on that, Nathaniel. Now you have a relief that you've got the absolute right christening gown for that as well. Yeah, it's going to make it a, a very special day. And, and now this is kind of a, a new chapter to the, the story of this gown. Now, I also have to ask you, next time you have to move the gown on, how are you going to ship that? Well, we're, uh, you know... For sure, we're going to um, have it shipped with a signature required. Yes, that's a good one. Um, You know, I'm not sure. We'll figure out a way to to make sure it's secure. Well, I am so relieved to hear that you guys got it back, and that's a great ending to that. And listen, good luck, uh, congratulations, and have fun at the baptism. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, we love the story. That is Nathaniel Powell from Surrey talking about a 100-plus-year-old christening baptismal gown that has been in his family for, as you heard, decades and decades. Somebody stole it off the porch when it got delivered. And thanks to dedicated RCMP officer, it came back to them. That's amazing. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com, but we do love a story with a good, happy ending. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's become a common question that is dogging the Vancouver Park Board. If other jurisdictions like North Vancouver and Port Coquillam can get their acts together and allow drinking in public parks, why can't they? Well, a good question. They did vote last night to make it happen about a year from now because they say, oh, they need permission from the provincial government. But I thought they've been talking about this already for a year what is taking so long? So we thought we'd try to get an answer as to why other jurisdictions manage to do it so easily and how it's been working out. So joining us now is Brad West, the mayor of Porco Gillum, to talk about this. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I take it everything is still okay in Porco Gillum. The world hasn't ended because they're drinking in public parks? Yeah, the uh, beer-fueled anarchy continues unabated out here in Poco. Ah, they, no, haven't, all, they haven't all just moved to Belcara then? <laughs> no, no, not yet. Um, you know, it, it's it's going very well, which is exactly what I expected. Uh, you know, really, this is about families that are gathering in our parks, um, which is happening more and more uh, during this COVID pandemic. We've seen a huge influx of our residents uh, looking to get outside and uh, socialize with uh, folks within their circle and and they're using our parks more and more to do that and so we've had mainly families take to uh, our parks in in Port Coquitlam and uh, and are now able to celebrate a a birthday or a special celebration or gathering uh, by enjoying uh, an adult beverage responsibly. Right. I know it sounds revolutionary (laughs) it happens all over the world without incident uh, and it's you know, becoming quite normal out here. People are seeing it and responding well to it, and uh, we haven't had any big issues. And seriously, though, you must have had some pushback, though, because, right, we know that's happened here in Vancouver, as groups have said, no, we shouldn't be allowing this. You must have had the same. 
I, I mean, we not every resident agrees with it, of course, and uh, that's part of democracy. People have different perspectives, and uh, council listens to those and then makes a decision that they think is in the best interest of uh, of the majority of our community, and, and that's what we did here, and we did in about two weeks. I, I mean, I'm really at a loss as to why uh, things like this, which, you know, quite frankly, let's be honest, this is hardly rocket science. Uh, need to take years to figure out. I mean, it, it's actually that type of thing that annoys far more people than even if you had just made the decision one way or the other. Right. So how was Port Coquitlam able to do it so quickly and then a city like Vancouver goes through this huge, long process? Yeah, well, I'm not sure exactly what Vancouver's process... I mean, I understand, obviously, there's council and then they have uh, the parks board and there's different jurisdictions there, but... Um, Basically, in Port Coquitlam, the the province um, has allowed this, uh, and so we uh, took them up on it, and uh, we passed a, a bylaw that allowed for uh, the provision of uh, uh, of drinking responsibly uh, in some of our parks. Um, went before council, turned that around in about two weeks, and uh, and off we go. Um, so you said the I province mean, a province allowed this? Did they give a blanket thing and just say you guys can do this? Uh, municipalities do have the authority to to do this, uh, and that's why you've seen North Vancouver City uh, move forward with it. You've seen other cities consider it and, and say, no, we're not going to do it for right. whatever their reasons are. Um, but all of these municipalities have the authority to do so. Uh, Penticton is another municipality in the Okanagan that has uh, moved forward with allowing it. Um, so I, I, I'm not exactly sure where this, oh, we don't have the authority comes from. And, and, and again, I'm not going to speak to the specifics of Vancouver because I'm not familiar with it, but I can tell you that uh, I know that not only in Port Coquitlam, but in municipalities across the province, the authority exists to do this. And many have considered it and some have said yes and some have said no. How do you police this then? Like, obviously, you're going to have the occasional case of somebody taking this too far. What measures have you put in place for that? Uh, so we've increased our uh, bylaw enforcement um, to ensure that there's the appropriate amount of uh, patrols and just people keeping an eye on things. Um, the one single issue we've had thus far, um, you know, I, I think demonstrates actually how this gets policed. So there was a complaint that uh, there was a group that was being uh, too loud. Uh, that complaint came into bylaw. They bylaw attended, uh, spoke to the the folks, told them that. Uh, they couldn't be so loud to infringe on uh, other people's enjoyment of the parks, and and they uh, turned down the volume, and and things were fine, and life went on. I mean, uh, I think again, of course, there are going to be issues, and when they arise, you deal with them, but you can't let the doomsday scenario uh, dictate, you know, what you're going to do, because if if you allow that to happen, we would never do anything. Because you're always going to be able to say, oh, well, this could happen and this could happen and this could happen. Um, you know, and then right. when issues do happen, you deal with them. But the vast majority of people uh, want to do the right thing and are, are responsible. I get, and that's what I was curious about, too, is that there were some concerns that, oh, well, if people misbehave in the park then and we're allowing them to drink, how do you get them to stop? Well, you do like what you just said. You tell them you're being too loud. There's other ordinances, right, that you can use yeah. to shut that down. Yeah, I'm. I mean, that's maybe one of the misunderstood things. By by saying you're uh, allowed to have, enjoy an, an adult beverage responsibly in a park doesn't uh, null and void every other law that exists with respect to public intoxication, uh, drinking and driving, all the rest of it. I mean, it, it's, it's very similar to, it, it's really no different than going to a restaurant. I mean, you go to a restaurant, if you're going to have, uh, you know, a, a glass of wine or a beer or whatever, I mean, you have to give some thought ahead of, you know, who's going to be responsible for driving. And you don't go into the restaurant, you know, and, and start acting, you know, like a Yahoo uh, just because you've, you're allowed to have a drink there. Uh, and so it's the, the same yeah. thing applies. And, you know, and, and, and people get that. And, it, it, you know, it really has not been an issue. And like I say, it has primarily been families. Um, you know, right. there's a, a park very close to, to our house. I walk by there with um, my three-year-old son all the time. And uh, there's a nice picnic shelter. Uh, and it's a great place to have a picnic or a family get together. 
and it's busy every single day mm-hmm. during the summer. And you know what I see? I don't see you know groups of twenty somethings crushing beers. <laughs> what I see is uh, a family's gathered, and you know that cooler that right. was probably already there is no longer hidden. It's just on the on the picnic table, right. and you know people are you know enjoying whatever they're enjoying. Uh, Mayor West, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. That's Brad West, Mayor of Port Coquitlam, talking about what's been going on in that community since they passed the ability for people to drink in public parks. Not the end of the world, as you heard him describe there. It's people wondering, what is this painful process that Vancouver is going through? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.